Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Primary Care Podcast. It's your boy, Dr. Mark List, uh, coming at you with another episode today. But before we get into it, uh, obviously, you know, we always start with um, messages, jokes from the Primary Care uh, Primary Care. Primary Care Podcast, uh, sorry, PrimaryCarePod at gmail.com inbox. Whew, uh, it's it's been a it's been a rough morning so far. Let me just tell you what. Uh, PrimaryCarePod at gmail.com inbox. Uh, you know that's where you can send me jokes or questions or comments, uh, fan feedback. Um, I, I had a patient uh, actually email me the other day. Not a patient, sorry, a listener email me. Whew, this is gonna be a rough episode. I apologize in advance, guys. Um, I had an, a listener email me and ask me, hey, you know, Doctor List. Have you ever sent, um, do you ever use your dad jokes with patients? And yeah, you know, I do. I try and keep my practice lighthearted. But there was really one specific example that, st- that, that stands out in my mind. Um, one time I was in residency. I was up on labor and delivery. Um, I was, there was a woman in labor and I was trying to, you know, lighten the mood, um, trying to, you know, diffuse a tense situation. And so I, I made a joke and she just glared at me and, you know, was not having it at all. And maybe it was just my delivery. All right, let's start the podcast. Primary Care Podcast is written and by a family physician for an audience of other physicians, nurse practitioners, physicians, assistants, residents, medical students interested in primary care topics. This is not a podcast for patients and should not be used as medical advice. This is also a personal podcast, produced in my own time and solely reflecting my personal opinions. Statements of this podcast do not reflect the views or policies of my employer, past or present, or any other organization with which I may be affiliated. Thank you for listening to the Primary Care Podcast. I'm Dr. Mark List, here to bring you the latest news, guidelines, and updates from primary care sources around the globe. Keeping it under 15 minutes long because you're in a hurry and I'm not that smart. All right, all right, all right. Welcome back to the podcast. Pod girls, pod boys, pod people. It's your boy, Dr. Mark List. Um, I'm actually recording this and that joke uh, in clinic. Um, We currently are under a winter storm watch. My first three patients all canceled for the morning, so I've just been sitting here. So I was like, hey, I'll just uh, I'll just read a I'll just do a podcast episode while I wait for patients to show up. Um, this uh, this podcast episode is actually in today's uh, JAMA that I just got on my desk literally this morning. Um, read an article when I first got here again because my first patient no showed uh, or actually canceled. Shouldn't say no show. Um, and the article is it's not that um, it's not that awesome. But it's the effect of a diagnostic strategy using an elevated and age-adjusted D-dimer. So in patients where suspected uh, pulmonary embolism, this was in um, Spain and France, and they had uh, 1,500 patients or 1,400 patients came into the ER and they standardized them uh, or they randomized them into standard care versus um, this intervention. And the intervention was basically they had to have a, um, a year's criteria, okay? So year's criteria is basically... Um, they, they put them through this algorithm, um, and so then they said, okay, so if you if we have any suspicion of pulmonary embolism, we're going to put you through this year's criteria. Year's criteria basically was, um, was there, was PE the most likely diagnosis? Or did they have hemoptysis? Or did they have, I forget the third one, hold on a second here. Um, or did they have a clinical sign of a DVT, right? So those are the three year's criteria. And if any of those years criteria were positive, then they went to an age-adjusted D-dimer status, okay? And so the math behind the age-adjusted D-dimer status is 10 times their age, okay? And um, if they had a negative years criteria, so PE was not the most likely diagnosis, there was no signs of clinical DVT, and there was no hemoptysis, then they used a high D-dimer threshold of 1,000 nanograms per milliliter, okay? Which is way, way, way higher than yours or my um, uh, lab standard, right? And then if 
If that was low, um, then they could exclude the PE based on that. If it was under that D-dimer setting, whatever that setting was age-adjusted age or, um, or that higher threshold, um, then they did not do any CT scanning imaging. Um, but if it was positive, then they did the CT scan. And the, the entire point of the study was that right, D-dimers are pretty garbage and they can be positive in lots of different clinical situations. So let's try and make them more useful by making age-appropriate ranges or putting a higher threshold to our D-dimer if we have a very low clinical suspicion of PE, right? And, and these patients that, well, why were we even suspecting PE in the first place? Well, they came in with shortness of breath um, and they met uh, some kind of criteria on the PERC rule, right? So PERC rule is the pulmonary embolism rule out criteria. Um, it's it's not easy to remember everything that's on that list because it's all vague, right? So if you wanna make sure that you don't need to do any PE workup at all, ever, basically if they're older than 50, doesn't matter, you have to think PEs in the differential. If they have a pulse greater than 100, um, again, you can't rule out um, a pulmonary embolism. Um, if their O2, if their O2 saturation is less than 94, you cannot rule it out without further testing. If they have unilateral leg swelling, hemoptysis, recent surgery or trauma, prior PE or DVT, or if they're using exogenous exergen use, um, you cannot rule out a PE without further workup. Now, those are the people that they kind of put. You, you had to, you had to have one of those kind of triggers um, in order to kind of qualify for the study. Plus, you know you know, shortness of breath or whatever your diagnostic case may be that, that brought you in. Syncope could be anything um, that could qualify you for the study. And then you had to, to go through this, either the standard control, which was basically like, okay, we're just going to test you with the D-dimer. And if you're positive, we're going to give you a CT scan. If you're negative, then we're not going to do a, D, a CT scan. Um, and then in, the, in this control group, right, they tried to change the um, screening um, cutoffs for the D-dimer. So make the D-dimer more useful. Why? Because D-dimer has incredible rates of false positivity. Again, it can be up for lots of different reasons. It's not a very accurate test. And the whole idea is, can we not use so many CT scans? Can we stop doing all these you know, crazy, expensive, and invasive PE workups and give people radiation on the CT scans? Um, and yet, can we not miss PEs? Can we not miss hospitalizations? Can we prevent death, disease, and bad stuff while harming the patient less with our diagnostic workups, right? That's the entire point of the study. And in this study, using this, you know, modified D-dimer uh, process, so you 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 change the D-dimer um, settings in terms of what's considered a positive D-dimer or negative D-dimer, either by using an age-adjusted if they're high risk or using a high threshold D-dimer, right? Ignoring what your lab says is high and then putting your own threshold on it, okay? Um, they were able to use 10% fewer CT scans, okay? So in the intervention group, in, in the main control group, right, um, anybody who had anything positive on their PERC score basically got a D-dimer and they got um, basically 50% of those D-dimers were positive and needed a CT scan, 50% were negative and, and were ruled out at that point. Um, in the entire study, uh, sorry, and, and sorry, and in the in this, this intervention group where you use modified D-dimer ranges, um, only 40% of those D-dimers were then positive and needed a CT scan. 60% then did not need a further workup, okay? So it, it decreased the CT scan use by 10%. So it's 10% fewer patients that didn't have to get a CT scan and get radiation. But my point is, is that 
at the end of the study, right, none of the other algorithms changed, none of the other outcomes changed, right? Death, uh, future diagnoses of PEs at a later date, um, nothing else changed, even though we modified the, the D-dimer cutoff. So our standard positive D-dimer really doesn't really matter. Um, we could use a higher D-dimer cutoff in, in this case because these people were lower risk based on this year school, uh, score. Um, the, my big take home from this point was that 7% of patients in this trial, right, presented the ED with shortness of breath or syncope or some reason for suspected PE, right? These are 1,400 people in the ER who showed up to the ER because they thought something really bad was happening to them. And only 7% of these people ended up having a PE. The majority, 93% had other things, right? But we as we as, as clinicians always worry about a PE when anybody comes in with shortness of breath or has any of these risk factors. And this gets back to that PERC score, right? The people were enrolled in this study because the PERC score was positive, right? So 93% of people that had something positive on the PERC score, either their age or their pulse or, you know, exogenous estrogen use or, you know, uh, oxygen saturation less than 40% basically had to have a workup for a PE, right? Because you can't miss a PE in there, you know, in this scenario. But using even a modified D-dimer score, it, it didn't even change the outcomes, right? Only 7% of people total had a D-dimer, uh, and only 1% were missed uh, of all the of all the um, PEs. 1% of that 7% were missed or delayed versus 0.1% um, in the control group were missed, right? So, and that wasn't statistically significant. There was no change in hospitalization. There was no change in mortality. Clinically significant data didn't it didn't change anything. And so that study is like, okay, great. So maybe we should use a modified D-dimer scale, right? But one of the more interesting editorials that I've ever read in JAMA about a study uh, came attached to this, right? So in the editorial, this was page 2,135 uh, for those of you who had this week's JAMA. Diagnostic Strategies for Suspected Pulmonary Embolism is the name of the editorial. Um, and it's by Marcel Levi and Nick Van Ness, both MD, PhDs. And, you know, they talked through the study and they basically, if you wanted to avoid reading the whole study and wanted to read their summary of it, it was really good. Um, and then, right, they, they, they really summarized my feelings on how medicine is becoming very algorithmic, okay? And you know me, right? I am all of, in favor of doing less. Less is more. Study after study after study. We shorten courses of antibiotics recently. We do less surgical interventions. We do more physical therapy. We, we prescribe less medicine and outcomes aren't that much different. And we talk about this probably every third or fourth episode on the podcast that, you know, it's okay in, in a majority of cases to kind of, you know, use your clinical judgment and, and, you know, choose either not to intervene or intervene based on your clinical judgment. And in, Pulmonary embolism, that's really hard, right? Because pulmonary embolism is hard because a lot of patients have very few clinical symptoms. And the clinical symptoms that they do have are incredibly vague. And, you know, that PERC score, a pulse greater than 100. Well, hell, how many of your patients have a pulse greater than 100, right? How many of your patients that come into the clinic or come into the clinic or come into the ER are above the age of 50 that have shortness of breath? I mean, the differential diagnosis is massive. And yet, based on the PERC rule, which is supposed to help you basically, oh, if all of these things are negative, then you can rule out PE. That PERC rule is really not helpful in most clinical scenarios, right? Um, and again, in this case, this PERC rule, which is supposed to help you rule out pulmonary embolism, did not rule out pulmonary, pulmonary embolism in 93% of patients. 
and the CT scan yield that basically we're, we're triggering based on a, a D-dimer, which is not that great of a test, right, is wrong in 93% of patients, right? 93% of people did not have a D-dimer. Oh, well, I guess that's half of the people had a positive D-dimer, and it's only 7% of those. So we're talking like, you know, 43% of all the enrolled patients were harmed by D-dimer, not benefited from the D-dimer, right? But I mean, this is this is what the problem is with pulmonary with pulmonary embolism and kind of try, trying to practice algorithmic-based medicine. And so this editorial, I'm going to read the editorial because I think that they did a really good job, and I'm going to not going to be able to summarize it as well as they did. Several factors should be considering should be considered interpretation of the study findings. Although the algorithms in this study were not particularly complex, the multi-step process presented in this trial could complicate the approach for evaluating suspected PE by very busy emergency department physicians. And, and you in the clinic are oftentimes, I'm in the situation too, I know you have in your clinic as well. Obviously these were people who presented to the ER with shortness of breath or, or, um, or some kind of you know, syncopal episode or something, right? But in the clinic, we also get these vague things as well, right? So include yourself in this if you're not, and maybe some of you are seeing these people in the ER as well. So this complicates the approach of evaluating suspected PEs by busy ER physicians who evaluate and treat patients for, with myriad clinical conditions. A diagnostic sequence that first requires you to calculate the PERC rule in patients and then apply other scoring systems, in this case, the years criteria, with in, in PERC positive patients who judge to be intermediate list, risk and then combine that with the D-dimer testing use in the differential, using a new differential threshold, it might not be the most practical or easy to remember approach in a busy clinical setting. Yeah, how many of you off the top of your head can name everything in the PERC rule? Not very many of us, probably 0% of us. Well, I shouldn't say 0% of us because I'm a nerd and I memorize these things. Um, but probably less than 5% of practicing clinicians memorize the PERC rule or even remember in a busy clinical practice to go look at the PERC rule you know, while you're trying to see, you know, 20, 30 patients per day, or in you're the ER and you're stuffed to the gills with patients and you've got five, six people in, you have a new trauma coming in, you have a chest pain, uh, you know, uh, heart attack rule out, somebody's coding, and yet you have to try to remember the, not only to do the PERC rule, but then if the PERC is positive for anything, which by the way, the PERC is going to be positive for 90% of people coming in the ER because <laughs> it has such vague, vague diagnostic criteria, you're going to have to do this year's approach and then a modify, then have to remember this modified, uh, you know, D-dimer threshold, right? How many of us are actually going to be able to do that? So then they go on to say, moreover, the proposed approach was only studying the cohort of patients with subjectively low or intermediate risk of pulmonary embolism. Why? Because if they're, if you're highly suspicious, you're just going to get the CT scan anyways. Okay. And this also explains the rather low pulmonary embolism prevalence of only about 7% in the study. The safety of these diagnostic workups for a group with a higher prior suspicion of pulmonary embolism was not valued in the study, and the subtlety may not be easily forgotten. And this subtlety may easily be forgotten in clinical routine practice, as we're so busy and trying to remember all these rules. It could be argued that in clinical emergency medicine practice, a simpler approach might be preferred to avoid confusion or even possible errors. In addition, this doesn't apply to everybody and, you know, they might have other symptoms of chest pain or shortness of breath or feeling unwell, and that sometimes CTL, CTs are useful in the ER for reasons that aren't even associated with pulmonary embolism, right, to establish an alternative diagnosis. So if we're saving the patient, you know, 10% of CT scans, is that even a good thing in the ER and clinical medicine? Because then we're finding the diagnostic reason um, in those other times. So 
one of the reasons why I wanted to bring up this study was that I've been reading a lot more about PEs lately and PEs just in general suck, right? It just is miserable because we're relying on tools. The CT scan is amazing, right? It has incredible diagnostic accuracy, but then we're relying on this garbage D-dimer test. And, you know, it depends on where you are. This can be a send out test that takes time to come back. If you're in the ER, you're waiting hours just for the D-dimer test when you're, you've got a CT scan ready and ready to go. Do you even get the D-dimer if you're suspicious? Nah, you probably just skip to the CT scan. And you and I, in in outpatient or inpatient or emergency medicine clinical practice are being bombarded and bombarded and bombarded by new algorithms and more and more increasing complex algorithms that are quote unquote changing the standard of care because these algorithms have been verified in the medical literature. But when it comes to having a busy practice, are you really going to remember to go through two different scores on this patient with PE? Are you going to really do the perk first? And then if that's positive, then you're going to go on to this year's criteria. And then you're going to have to remember a modified D-dimer. And then you're going to have, right? It's, it's going to become at least at some point overwhelming. You're going to make mistakes unless you're kind of constantly using up-to-date or refreshing and reviewing these articles, right? Versus just using clinical medicine, right? Do you suspect they have a, a, a D-dimer or do you expect they have a, CT, a, a PE? Then get the CT scan or get the D-dimer and not have to worry about these criteria, right? At some point, I talk about clinical suspicion, clinical um, awareness, a clinical um, gestalt, right? Having some true value when it comes to clinical medicine and not harming patients with excessive testing, right? Um, and excessive workups. And again, in this study, even in a high-risk situation like the ER, even in patients who have a positive PERC score, right, only 7% have a PE. And at some point, are we losing our clinical judgment, relying on algorithms and algorithms and algorithms to help us guide what tests we even order, not even what things we diagnose or what medications we use, but what tests we're ordering, what our clinical suspicion should even be, right? And I know everyone wants to fix PEs and everyone wants to find every single PE and that's that should be the goal, right? That should be the goal so that no PE is missed. And yet we are then harming, you know, 90% of patients that get a CT scan end up having no diagnostic yield for PE, um, even despite the clinical importance that was listed in the study under multiple studies have found that to be the case where 90% of our CT scans for PE diagnoses do not present, do not find a PE. So 90% of patients are kind of quote unquote harmed by that uh, in terms of their workup not showing um, any clinical significance. So again, to wrap up, this is a good study. It tells us that the D-nimer is worthless, uh, not worthless, uh, not very useful in a clinical practice. And you can even modify your D-nimer thresholds if patients meet certain criteria. But I think my big take home from the study is the fact that like, here's a study that uses multiple algorithms, multiple changes to to structures and, and the outcomes aren't any different. Yeah, we use 10% less CT scans and your ER trips were like an hour shorter because you didn't have to have the CT scan and, and more workup to rule things out. But at the cost of physician well-being, burnout, uh, feeling overwhelmed by trying to memorize all these diagnostic algorithms, right? Um, so again, hopefully this was a helpful at least refresher of PE algorithms, that PERC score, um, maybe you now learn something about D-dimer thresholds or age-adjusted thresholds that probably don't matter in terms of clinical practice um, compared to your normal lab cutoff for D-dimers. Um, the fact that, you know, older patients are going to have positive D-dimers at a higher rate, and so you can have an age-adjusted cutoff is always valuable to remember. 
But ultimately, I think my take home is at some point, yes, there are algorithms out there to help you when you're struggling. But as the editorial says, we're, we're starting to be on that threshold of kind of overwhelming practitioners with algorithms and and diagnostic aids that are no longer aiding us and they're now getting in the way and they're uh, they're creating more and more busy work for us to do in during busy clinical practice. So anyways, hopefully this was at least a helpful study uh, for you or at least a helpful refresher on PEs. I find it just interesting and fascinating to, to read about um, maybe the cons of following algorithms and, and trying to be more, um, have more rules and, and guidelines that sometimes it is harmful and sometimes it's overbearing and sometimes there's a downside to all these things uh, with evidence-based medicine. It's not always rainbows and butterflies. Evidence-based medicine sometimes can go too far and clinical judgment can be still um, a very useful tool in our toolbox. So anyways, I still don't have a patient in practice yet. It is now snowing harder and harder as I look out my window. Um, I don't know how many of my patients are gonna cancel today. Maybe it'll be a slow clinic day, um, but hopefully this was helpful. Uh, I will see you next week. Reminder, you don't need to stay up all night to stay up to date. Thanks and have a great week. Bye.